The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Across the Airways, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV shops or reviews, along with news and opinions on the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who wants those mother-freaking snakes off his mother-freaking plane, because with me is a guy who I just cannot believe has put up with me for 200 episodes of this show, because with me is the Quatsit to my Sherlock, because with me is a guy who is into all the cosplay that goes on on the Comic-Con floor, and of course with me is the guy who stopped a nuclear bomb from going off in New York City with absolutely no idea what he was doing. Can with me is a guy who knows not to fall out of helicopters when wearing a Santa suit. Can with me is a guy who is always ready with a grenade. Can with me is a guy who plays a really mean Max guitar. My co-host and jukebox hero. Can with me is a guy who has not been replaced by a Zygon. Can with me is a guy who thinks it was about time for heroes to wrap itself up. Can with me is a guy who is shocked to discover that his former master is Darth Vader. Can with me is a guy who has a Fear of Horta Party, thanks to the Equals. Get with me, because the guy who just wants to believe. My co host. Hey, everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airways. On this week's episode, we continue the fall 2016 TV season with our review of an episode of The Walking Dead, Star Wars Rebels, Westworld, and Michael and Tim's Supernatural Review. But before all of that, we're going to kick the episode off with a little news with Nico. Game of Thrones star Amelia Clark joins Star Wars Han Solo spin-off film. Game of Thrones star Amelia Clark has joined the cast of the upcoming Star Wars spin-off film about a young Han Solo. Clark will reportedly play the female lead, but no further details on the role have been released. And she's not the first to go from Game of Thrones to Star Wars, as Gwendolyn Christie, who plays Brianna of Tarth on the HBO fantasy series, was in last year's Star Wars The Force Awakens as Captain Phasma. Alden Ehrenreich will star as the young Han Solo, the role originated by Harrison Ford in the first Star Wars trilogy, and Atlanta star Donald Glover co-stars as young Lando Calrissian, the smuggler character originally played by Billy Dee Williams. The spin-off film will be set before the events of the first Star Wars film, 1977's A New Hope, and is slated for a May 2018 release. Doctor Who Christmas Special Cinema Screenings The 2016 Doctor Who Christmas Special will be screening at cinemas nationwide through Fandom Events on Tuesday, December 27th and Thursday, December 29th at 7pm local time. The special, entitled The Return of Doctor Mysterio, which sees the Doctor team up with a reporter and a superhero to fight an alien menace with Matt Lucas's Nadal in tow, will be shown in its full 60-minute glory at the Fathom Event screening and will be followed by two exclusive bonus features, a new kind of superhero which takes a look at the series' unique take on the superhero genre, and a special Christmas Doctor Who extra which will go inside the making of the special with appearances by Peter Capaldi, Matt Lucas, and showrunner Stephen Moffat. The return of Doctor Mysterio will be in 400 cinemas nationwide through Fathom Events. Tickets went on sale to the general public on Friday, November 18th, so go get those if you want to see it. Doctor Who Power of the Daleks is a lost classic made visible again. Due to a lack of foresight and a belief that television programs would not need to be archived for posterity, the BBC wiped or junked a huge swath of their output back in the early 1970s. This resulted in hundreds of missing episodes of shows like Dad's Army, The Quartermass Experiment, and Doctor Who from the 60s and prior. Much of Who has been recovered, but there are still 97 episodes missing, presumed lost forever. This is why what the BBC has done with the power of the Daleks is so brilliant and necessary. Animating the missing episodes allows people to see the story for the first time. The Power of the Daleks is a landmark story celebrating its 50th anniversary this month and has become the holy grail of stories the fans hope would someday be found. It is the very first story to feature the 
second Doctor, Patrick Troughton, meaning it is the very first post-regeneration story. The episode ushered in a new era of the show, one that ensured it could continue for 50 more years with different actors in the lead role. Beyond that, it's also hailed as one of, if not the very best, Dalek story of all time, showing that the time-tested villains could be sneaky, underhanded, and could play humans like fiddles if they needed to. This rich story is now animated using monochrome flash animation made from off-air recordings of the original audio and utilized existing clips and photographs of the production itself. The Power of the Daleks is the BBC's first attempt to commission an entire missing story, a six-episode arc, completely in animation. However, with the BBC commissioning this story in animation, it all but solidifies that the actual episode will never be found, because why would they spend all this time and money on animation if they had any hope of recovering the real thing? But it opens up a whole new world of possibility for this era of the show. I'd love to see other missing stories depicted in this way. The Power of Daleks aired on Saturday, November 19th at 8.25, 7.25 Central on BBC America, so hopefully you can look through your, your local listings and see when it's going to air again. Making a Murderer's Brendan Dassey Released from Prison Officially Ordered Brendan Dassey, one of the subjects of Netflix's controversial documentary series Making a Murderer, may finally be getting his release. Dassey's conviction was overturned in August of this year, and the state of Wisconsin had 90 days to release him. Now the same judge who overturned the conviction has officially ordered for Dassey's release, but the state of Washington can potentially still hold up the process with an appeal, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Dassey, now 27, has been in prison since 2007 for for the murder of photographer Teresa Halbach, he and his uncle Stephen Avery were the center of the Netflix series about the trial. Though Dassey was convicted on three counts of the crime, first degree intentional homicide, second degree sexual assault, and mutilation of a corpse, making a murderer speculated that his confession to helping Avery with the murder was coerced by the Manitoba County Police. His release will be under supervision and pending further court developments. Avery is still serving a life sentence for the crime, and this is a big break in the case, and Netflix has already promised that more episodes of Making a Murderer are being produced to document the updates in both Dassey's and Avery's appeal. If you have not watched this series, please do so. It is amazing. Marvel's Inhuman series set at ABC to follow Black Bolt and Royal Family. ABC is growing its comic book empire with Marvel's The Inhumans, a live-action drama slated to air on the network next fall. The new eight-episode series will explore the never-before-told epic adventures of Black Bolt and the Royal Family. The first two episodes will actually premiere in IMAX theaters during a two-week window in early September before the show makes its broadcast debut. A race of superhumans with diverse and unique abilities, the Inhumans were introduced to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. during Season 2 when Chloe Bennett's Sky, via Terragenesis, evolved into the Inhuman, later dubbed Quake. The new Inhumans series, by all accounts, will have no ties back to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., however. An Inhumans film was originally slated for November 2018, then pushed to 2019, and then delayed again with no new project date. Apparently, that is still going going forward despite this series being on TV, so look for much more Inhumans in the future. AMC gives The Walking Dead even more extended episodes. Fans who cannot get enough of The Walking Dead can rejoice. You're getting even more extended episodes this season. The traditional hour-long drama has packed Season 7 with some seriously meaty episodes, with Episode 4 airing in a 58-minute time slot. And according to the schedule on AMC's website, the sixth episode, Swear, will air in a 70-minute time slot, and Episode 7, Sing Me a Song, will be a full 90 minutes. Clearly, the scribes behind AMC's gripping zombie apocalypse series have quite a tale to tell this year as Negan's reign of terror unfolds that and their advertising slots are at an all-time premium. Season 7 of Walking Dead, like previous seasons, will be split into two eight-episode long halves, with the first half ending in three episodes slash three weeks, and the second half presumably picking up sometime around Valentine's Day in 2017, as it has in previous seasons. Look for a lot more Walking Dead this season. And that's the news with Nico for this week. Alright, with that big Walking Dead news of gigantic episodes to come this season. We'll jump right into this week's episode, the Maggie-centered, very good episode entitled Go-Getters. (laughs) 
Surrounded by enemies and saddled with grief, members of the group hope to find safety at the hilltop for it's too late. First and foremost, this week's episode gave many viewers something that they have not had from the ep- episodes this past month that followed the premiere, closure in following the deaths of Glenn and Abraham. The series has checked in on pretty much every one of the show's major players this season, except two of the three people who were most affected by the events of the brutal polarizing season premiere, Maggie and Sasha. We saw Rosita's response to Abraham's death in last week's episode, and it turns out that both the red-headed giant's girlfriends have the same thing in mind right now. Swift, bloody vengeance against the bastard who killed him. Maggie, because she's carrying a child, is a little less focused on revenge and more concerned with the survival of her and her baby. But it's clear from her words this week and from the cobra-like intensity in eyes that the end game isn't far from her mind. Maggie Ree is going to become a rally cry for Maggie. Maggie telling Gregory that she was Maggie Ree, taking Glenn's name, not referring to herself by her maiden name, Maggie Green, anymore, was a chest-thumping moment for The Walking Dead's most likable heroine. Not just because she put Gregory in his place and showed him what a true leader looks like, but because it was indicative of her drive moving forward. It was also indicative of her motive this whole time. I did not expect Maggie to retreat into despair after Glenn's tragic passing, despite the emotional devastation from the events of the season 7 premiere. Maggie is a survivor, and in this world, survivors need something to hang on to. And for her, Glenn will always be that thing to hold on. For five seasons, Maggie's drive to survive was the love she shared with Glenn. It was one of the few relics from the old world that still existed in this twisted new reality. And while the world burned around them, they shared some of the most normal human moments in the series. Their quick courtship, their engagement, Maggie's pregnancy, their adorable picture-taking scene in the Watchtower. In a show with so much misery, it was Maggie and Glenn who provided the greatest scenes of hope that everything we took for granted, the simple things, could eventually return. Maggie's proclamation that she was Maggie Ree clearly shows us that her headspace is to keep fighting for Glenn. The anger that backed it and the smack she laid on Gregory means she isn't scared, and while Rick hands over everything he can and more to Negan and watches his leadership credibility evaporate, Maggie is showing the fortitude to press forward. She ran over the car with a tractor, for Christ's sake, which isn't the first time she's run over a car with a tractor, she noted. That's the kind of action that gets noticed, that people who are lost are going to look up to. Even Jesus took note, saying he couldn't see someone else taking Gregory's place until now and heavily implied that Maggie was his choice to take the power. I mentioned it last week, but maybe in a battle against a villain like Negan, we need the women of this world to unite against him and lead for a change. Maggie would be my first choice, as we know from last season she is also Rick and Diana's first choice as well. Maybe Maggie takes over Hilltop, maybe she unifies Hilltop with Alexandria, and potentially even the kingdom, since people power will be the key to battling Negan. Maybe she provides that spark that snaps Rick out of his funk and back into the badass Rick mode. No matter what direction this art takes, it's best to step aside and not get in Maggie Ree's way. I also love the return of Jesus this week as I've missed his crazy ninja skills since the last time we saw him sneak into Alexandria last season. The fact that he and Carl ended up together in the truck hints that we're going to see some crazy stuff from this coming encounter with Negan or his group. And initially I was concerned with Carl going after Negan on this suicide mission, especially since his aim has gone to crap what with the one eye as was evidenced by his crappy game of darts in the open of the episode. But now that Jesus is in the truck with him, I'm feeling better about where that story might go. Maggie and Sasha were not the only women to take a stand this week, as Enid makes a return appearance, fleeing Alexandria for Hilltop, where she forms a nice squad with Maggie and Sasha. She did get a bit of an assist from Carl when he killed that walker and crashed a car to save her, but I'm not entirely sure that was needed, as Enid is a survivor just like Maggie. I really love the if-not-mother-daughter relationship, then big-sister-little-sister relationship that is formed between Maggie and Enid. When Glenn saved Enid last season and forced her back to Alexandria, Maggie adopted her into their family, something Enid needed and Maggie and Glenn wanted. Since Beth's death and Enid's parents were killed, they both needed someone to fill those roles for each other and became the perfect fit. Plus, Glenn was just awesome like that and had so much love he took Enid under his wing without a second thought. Enid's scenes where she put the balloons on Glenn's, well, actually Abraham's grave, was such a touching scene. (laughs) I love the fact that Maggie said, I didn't have the heart to tell you it's the wrong grave. Anyway, this episode actually had quite a few touching scenes scenes, including the unusually joyful scene for this grim season when Carl and Edith came upon those pair of roller skates and for a brief moment got to be kids once again, holding hands as they skate down an empty highway. Now to close out this review, I have to mention again my favorite scenes of the episode were both involving Maggie.
Maggie this week. First, her crushing that car with the tractor was badass and elevated even more with the story of it not being the first time she had destroyed a car with a tractor as apparently some guy in high school disrespected her and she crushed his Camaro with a freaking tractor. Maggie, I love you. And second, the absolute scene of the episode was at the end when she stood up to Gregory and said, This is our home now. So you'll learn to start to call me by my name. Not Marcia, not dear, not honey. Maggie. Maggie Ree. I love that scene, and I think it's going to be the rally cry around which this, this group of survivors stands up to Negan. Alright, with that we're going to move on to a Star Wars Rebels episode that introduced a couple new characters, but I think we might have been better off without this episode. But anyway, we're going to talk about the episode entitled Iron Squad. Ezra and Sabine try to tame a rogue pilot and his crew who recklessly risked their lives in a fight to defend their home world from Imperial occupation. This week's episode introduced the Iron Squadron, which, like Zeb joked in the episode, turned out to be a shipful of Ezra's and not in a good way. This episode was entertaining enough, but it lacked the interesting backstory or deeper meaning that some of the others have had this season. It did successfully illustrate the scrap and spunk of some of the youth in the galaxy, and when there are movements of resistance and rebellion, there is a concept about teaching the children so they can continue to light the way, and these kids definitely took that to the extreme. Mark, Goody, and Joner had spirit, but their attitude meant they made rash decisions born from a place of overconfidence. It's part of being young and dumb and feeling invincible. I definitely had flashbacks to season one of Ezra or Luke and Dax taking on the whole Empire in Empire Strikes Back while watching the kids in action, but unfortunately without the charm of those characters. These three felt like cheap imitations, one-dimensional and worthlessly underdeveloped characters. They were bratty, with Mart being the most obnoxious of them all. Don't get me wrong, I admire how they all wanted to fight for what they believed in, and I applaud that desire in anyone who stands up against an oppressive or tyrannical government. But with them, it came off more that they were all impetuous and unwilling to work with the rebels who wanted to help and keep them alive. They haven't had a ton of experience in battle. It came up a couple times that they didn't even know what an Imperial Star Destroyer looked like. There were a few points when it even seemed ridiculous that they weren't listening to the ghost team. So why even review this episode if I had such an issue with the characters? Well, because of the three major developments that happened in the episode. First, Mart and his band of worthless underdeveloped characters were using a new and innovative attack method on the Empire where they would use cargo launched from a freighter like bombs. It was ingenious and seemed beyond the level of these otherwise worthless characters. So I'm hoping that this will become part of the Rebels bag of tools and it'll have a lasting impact on the series. Second, we got some more progression on the Grand Admiral Thrawn front. We're not getting as much Thrawn as I'd like because I'm greedy and impatient and I'm not ashamed to admit it that he's one of my favorite characters from the extended universe and I want more of him. But from what we have seen, Thrawn is testing his subordinates as much as he's testing the rebels. He toys with and manipulates other Imperials. I wouldn't use the word competent to describe Admiral Constantine, so I'm particularly curious about Thrawn's plan for him. I sort of felt like Thrawn saw every piece of this puzzle this week when he sent Constantine to deal with the problem and knew that he would likely fail. This mission was as much to weed out the incompetent officers in his command as it was to test the rebels' capabilities. At the end of the episode, Thrawn called Constantine out for screwing up, and I wouldn't be surprised if he was demoted the next time we see him. Third and finally, this episode again showed Hera's ability as a leader. The highlight of the episode was the action sequence where Hera and the ghost crew returned to rescue Mark because it showcased Hera's exceptional leadership and piloting skills. Her quick thinking saved everyone's skins and took out the Imperial light cruiser. She gave smart orders while keeping the ghosts from being destroyed by the Empire. Despite my feeling the first two seasons of this series were far superior in quality, this third season has done wonders to improve upon an already high quality character in Hera. Obviously this week's episode was not my favorite, but it did have some good parts and move the overall story forward. I'm hoping we get to see more development on Thrawn, Fulcrum, and even Ahsoka and the Ahsoka front in the coming episodes. But next week's episode looks like it's Space Pirates, so probably won't be next week that we get any of that story development I'm looking for. Anyway, that's Star Wars Rebels for this week. And with that, we're going to move on to Westworld and talk about the eighth episode entitled Trace Decay.
more is revealed of the connection between the man and Maeve. Meanwhile, Maeve takes advantage of her new programming, and Robert gives Bernard the gift of forgetfulness. Charlotte suborns Lee into helping her smuggle code out of the park, and Dolores begins to question her sanity. Did we just learn who the man in black really is? Did Westworld just all but say it flat out? Do we have confirmation that William and the man in black are the same person shown at two different points in his life? My long-held theory certainly seemed to edge closer to canon in this week's episode when Ed Harris's grizzled man in black recognized a blonde female host left at the scene of an attack by Wyatt's men. And savvy viewers also should have recognized the woman as the same one who greeted William when he first arrived at the park and from last week's commercial that Maeve saw upstairs. It's you, the man in black says to the host who has traded her sleek white mini dress for western garb. I figured they retired you. I guess Ford never likes to waste a pretty face. That's the most we get and I'll be the first to admit it's possible the sci-fi drama is coaxing us into believing one thing so it can sucker punch us with another but given the other stuff the man in black says about his life it's not that tough to imagine idealistic and hopeful young William morphing into this empty evil individual is it? This whole scene starts when Teddy starts to have flashes of the man in black dragging Dolores away in her parents front yard like we saw in the pilot so he decks the older man telling him that he wants to kill him. This puts the man in black in a contemplative mood so he winds up spilling a lot of his backstory. He goes on to say that his wife committed suicide partly because she knew he had a darkness inside him that he was hiding even from himself and he came back to the park to have his true nature revealed to him and then explains the terrifying and beautifully sunlit slow-mo shots that we've seen throughout the series of Maeve in her previous build as a homesteader with a daughter. He tells Teddy that he killed them because he wanted to see if he had it in him to do something truly evil to see what he was really made of but in the end he felt nothing but Maeve fought back hard cutting him at the neck and carrying her daughter out into the field where they died at the center of a maze that had been pressed into the ground she was alive truly alive if only for a moment and that was when the maze revealed itself to me he recalls with wonder there's a deeper game here Teddy Arnold's game and that game cuts deep oh and Wyatt who appeared at the end of the episode after the blonde woman stabs Teddy with an arrow appears to be the key to that maze so finally we understand that what the man in black's motivations are what he is seeking and why the only hole at the moment in my man in black and William theory is that the man in black killed Maeve a year ago from his point of point in time when he says he learned of the maze but William is currently on the hunt for the maze with Dolores in their timeline so how is it that William is not aware of the maze in his time while on the maze hunt with Dolores or that the man in black does not learn of it until a year ago in his time the only explanation I have for this at the moment is that William is blindly following Dolores's quest without actually knowing what the maze signifies and it is not until the man in black kills Maeve and she dies in the same maze symbol that it dawns on him the significance and speaking of Maeve we see that moment when she was really alive as the man in black recalls was the first moments of her awakening or her move towards sentience or consciousness in flashbacks we watch Maeve freaking out at the Westworld labs because her daughter has been killed she's not responding to verbal commands and she only calms a bit when Ford plays a piece of music hardwired into the host's code and is then able to issue a directive. Still, as he goes to wipe her memory, she begs him not to. Like Bernard said in an earlier episode, the pain is all I have left, but he does it anyway. And then she stands up, lifts a scalpel off a nearby tray, and plunges it into her own neck. Following the mind wipe, Maeve is given a new story as the Madam of the Whorehouse in Sweetwater and is where we picked up her story at the beginning of the series. In this episode, she continues to meet with Felix and Sylvester to continue with her upgrades. She seems to know all the secrets now as she informs Felix and Sylvester that she knows that she's got an explosive charge in her brain that'll detonate as soon as she leaves Westworld's perimeter. All the hosts do. But she moves forward with the planned upgrades and the biggest one we see in the episode is that Felix gives her administrative or narrative control of her fellow androids. Sylvester tries to convince Felix to brick Maeve when he takes her offline, but knowing the double cross is coming, Maeve, as soon as she's she gets souped up, grabs a scalpel and slits his throat just a little and then demands that Felix use a cauterizing tool to save his co-worker's life because she's got an army to build and will need Sylvester. Maeve's souped up abilities were cool as she was able to adjust the narrative controls and control other hosts by giving them commands in the third person but this attracted unwanted attention and when she slit the Clementine replacement right across her Adam's apple when she tries to stop Maeve from leaving the saloon it alerts park security to the situation and forces Maeve to run for it. Unfortunately for her they find her and behavior wants to take her 
in for an immediate diagnostic. Where will that lead her? Will this be the end of her revolution before it even began? Or was this all part of the plan to get into a situation where she could get even more capabilities from someone in behavior? My guess is it's probably the latter. But let's move on to William and Dolores. Dolores, who still is having strange flashes in which she often ends up dead, reaches the spot she feels she's been called to. As she walks into the town, we see her back in her blue gown. It seems like maybe it's in the very early days of the park because a group of hosts, including Maeve, are learning to dance in the town square and a lab coat wearing park staff member is overseeing the whole thing. But then everything shifts and someone is firing upon everyone in town. With horror, Dolores realizes it's her and just as pants wearing Dolores lifts a gun to her own head, William finds her and snaps her back to reality. When are we? Is this now? Am I going mad? Are you real? She cries. As the camera angle turns, we see that the church in Dolores's vision is really the burned church that we've seen before and which is not a few feet away from where she and William now stand. I can't tell anymore. William wants to get her out of there, but she's resolute that this is what Arnold wants. He wants me to remember. I thought maybe this story was finally going to start giving us some answers as Dolores reached her promised land. But when she started to go mad, William took her from that area to help her regain her composure and they happened upon the Confederates with none other than William's old friend and nemesis, Logan, at their head. With more pressing matters at hand, it is unlikely that Dolores's story moves forward further in the coming two final episodes of the season, but I could be wrong. We could see some more. Finally, the Delos story this week. Ford has Bernard wipe all evidence of what he did to Teresa. In exchange, the park's creator promises to wipe the host's memories of killing his lover. In fact, he'll wipe any memory that they hooked up at all, and when you look back, you will remember Teresa with the fondness of a respected colleague for Ford promises, and you will be at peace. Later, when all the dirty work is cleaned up, Bernard questions what makes his pain over his son's death, which isn't real, but feels that way, any different from any true human suffering, given that pain really only exists in the mind. That very question drove Arnold mad, Ford says casually before dismissing it. We can't define consciousness because consciousness doesn't exist. However, just before he's rebooted, Bernard wants to know whether his creator has asked him to kill before. Ford calmly replies, no Bernard, of course not. But as Bernard's memory is being wiped, he has a flash of choking Elsie. Which was really disappointing for me because I really liked her as a character and was hoping that somehow she was going to come back. Oh, and Ford totally knows that Charlotte was behind both Teresa's data piracy and Clementine's glitching out. And Charlotte totally knows that Teresa didn't just slip and fall to her death in the park. So the board member decides to find a new solution and dumps 35 years of vitally important data into a decommissioned Abernathy and then recruits narrative director Lee to give him enough of a personality so he can pass as human and leave the park, assuming they remove the explosive charge from his head beforehand. Having a bulk data dump sneak past security is a speedier method than transmitting information bit by bit, I'm sure, but it's also a great challenge. <laughs> you know, maybe he'll try to sit next to Maeve on the way out of town. Anyway, this is a great episode this week, and I can't wait for next week's penultimate episode entitled The Well-Tempered Clavier. All right, finally, we'll wrap this episode's reviews up with Michael and Tim's Supernatural review and discussion on the episode entitled Celebrating the Life of Asa Fox. Michael J. Petty here. Welcome back to the Supernatural segment of the Across the Aries podcast where we're talking Season 12, Episode 6, entitled Celebrating the Life of Asa Fox. With me today in the actual studio here in Bozeman, Montana, is my friend and fellow hunter in mourning, Tim Cook. Yeah, it's great to be here, and as Michael said, we're actually both in the same location for once, so that's pretty exciting. Um, we're ready to get into this week's episode. I think I can say it's probably, I mean... We're six episodes in, but this is definitely going to be one of the highlight episodes of the season for me. Yeah, absolutely. At least the first half. Yeah. So, this week's episode of Supernatural is a pleasant surprise, obviously. I enjoyed just about every part of this episode, from the return of both Jody and Mary to the introduction of Asa Fox and the other hunters we got to meet this episode. So, that being said, let's start this week's discussion with hunter culture. One of the things I've missed ever since we kind of got to see it back in Season 2 at the Roadhouse, was the idea of the Winchesters working with and encountering other hunters. They've known the Harvilles, Bobby, Rufus, Gordon, Garth, Jody, and a few others, but they don't really socialize with them, but largely due to how their father raised them. I thought Asa's wake was a great way for the brothers to be exposed on our culture, and I thought that the revelation of Asa being just about as legendary as Sam and Dean in some ways 
um, was a great way to humble the Winchesters in seeing that not everything revolves around them, even though they may be closest to the center. I really hope the Winchesters interact more with Hunters throughout the season and continue building up the network that Bobby and Garth had created, because I feel I still feel like we're going to have a Men of Letters Hunters war of sorts by the season's end, which could really be good if the brothers get together with a few more Hunters this season. Tim, did you like the glimpse into Hunter culture that we saw this week, and did you also kind of wish that we got to see more Asa Fox while he was alive and kicking? How cool would it have been? Or would it be maybe even the future to get an episode based off of when he killed those five Wendigos? Well, first off, let me say, the saddest ep- the saddest part of this episode, clearly, is when they killed him right at the beginning of the intro. Yeah. Because they, they flashed through this entire guy's life, and he seems like the kind of badass hunter we've been looking for yeah. for seasons now. And let me also say... They did a great job of introducing these characters right in this initial episode, and they gave us, you know, they gave us four or five hunters in this episode that all have pretty cool characters. And so I think if they can do that for one episode, they can really build up some hunters later in the season, which I'm really excited to see. Um, I'm hoping we definitely get to see more of it. You're right. Something that we've been missing since kind of the post-Kripke era is, is hunter culture. And you're right, part of that is because John never really wanted them to get involved in the hunter culture, and we did see the Roadhouse and some of those early episodes that are really impactful and kind of our favorites are how they interact with those hunters and how those characters are carried all the way through season five and um, kind of the emotion that comes with a lot of them wind up dying as so many characters on Supernatural do. Yeah. But... I think we can both agree that we really did actually enjoy this episode and seeing Hunter culture for a while. And um, it's disappointing we didn't get to see more of uh, Asia. I mean, what what a cool character to create in the first... No kid. I mean, talk about creating a two-minute intro that was just perfect and creating a really cool character. I mean, it shows us Supernatural can still do it. So yeah. hopefully they utilize that a little bit more to start introducing some newer and cooler people later in the season. One of the things I keep going back to was the episode last season where Sam and Dean were hunting the same creature that Bobby and Rufus had hunted around the time of season four. And I think yeah. it'd be really cool for Sam and Dean to hunt a Wendigo again. Mm-hmm. And maybe in a similar concept, we could see Asa f- fighting those five Wendigos that he actually talks about, that they actually all talk about him doing in this week's episode. I think that would be a great way to bring a Wendigo back, who I've been wanting to see for a very long time. Yeah, I think we talked about it right at our right at the end of our episode two. We were talking about some of the Monster of the Week episodes we want to see, and I know a Wendigo came up at some point, because mm-hmm. we've, I mean, we saw it in, what, the second episode of the entire series? Yeah. And we haven't seen it since. Right. A little bit disappointing, but, I mean... Five Wendigos at one time? Like, talk about talk about cool. And, I mean, they also do a throwback to a lot of the hunters we've met before. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, hint, hint, guys, where's Garth? <laughs> and, it, you know, on some, on some level, too, Asa actually kind of feels a little bit like Gordon Walker, the vampire hunter from the first few seasons of the yeah. show. Just a lot less um, psychotic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the best word I could use, but... But yeah, actually, that the intensity of Gordon's hunting style reminded me a lot of what we actually got to see and hear of Asa in this week's yeah. episode, and I like that a lot. That's, mm-hmm. Those are the kind of hunters like you talked about that I would really like to see. Yeah, well, again, it goes back to the fact that we really got such great character development in the first two minutes of this episode, and yeah. uh, it's really something I hope they utilize again. Plus, Bogman Turner Overdrive is your overall music. Perfect <laughs> choice. Anyway, going off that point, guys, the plot of this episode was essentially that JL... Crossroads demon and nemesis of Asa Fox has come to kill the hunters at Asa's funeral due to getting quote unquote cheated out of killing his enemy by fellow hunter Bucky. I thought it was actually good to see a crossroads demon again, and no, I do not count Crawley as a crossroads demon anymore, and I haven't since about season six. So it was very cool to see a demon actually exercise back to hell again instead of just using the knife or another angel blade to kill it. Obviously, the brothers weren't going to kill Jody, but I was scared for a second that JL was going to snap her neck just like he did with that Elvis guy. Luckily, my fears were proven false, and Jody was just fine, though not for lack of trying on Mary's part. Tim, did you also like that we got to actually. Er, did you also like that we actually had a demon bad guy again who seemed somewhat threatening, you know, aside from his poor hand-to-hand combat skills? And were you glad that Jody survived yet another episode of Supernatural? You know, I was a little afraid she was going to turn out like Charlie did in season 10. Oh, yeah, man. Uh, Jody has been around for far too long, man. If they kill her off, it's going to be a sad day yeah, in the I Supernatural agree. fan base. I really, I mean, I, 
I think part of what gave me a little bit secu- uh, a little bit of security about Jody this week is the girls weren't with her. Yeah. And I don't think they do that in the plot to kill her off without at least having the girls there agree. for it. Yep. So that gave me a little bit of, of confidence that hopefully Jody would make it out of this episode. Although I was worried. Supernatural loves to throw in the curveballs of killing people off. But right. I really liked seeing the Crossroads team this week. I mean, I know me and you have talked about it. I don't think we've talked about it on the podcast yet, but we've been asking since season six, what happened to the demons? Like, where are they? They they haven't been showing up any. I mean, they have been showing up, but they've just been getting <laughs> knifed and going away. Right. We haven't seen a Or they're thre- way too political. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we haven't seen a threatening demon in a while. I mean, yeah. sure, you can count, uh, you know, maybe some of the season nine plot, but even then I would say... This is a kind of a contained episode with a demon who's running amok and shows the power of the demons we used to see in those early seasons. And we can talk about it till our listeners are blue in the air, but we've talked about so many times how this season seems like a big throwback to the Kripke era. And this is another one of those things of bringing back the importance of demons, bringing back how how hard they are and how... You want to exercise them. You don't want to kill them. And and this was a good way of raising the stakes on that. Yeah. Putting a bunch of people in the room who, who no one wants to kill. They're all hunters. No one wants any of them dead. I mean, we yeah. did see a couple hunters die in this episode. But the point is, is that all the people in that room, no one wanted to see them die. I mean, you have, you know, Mary Winchester. You have both of the Winchesters in there. You have Jody. You have a couple of these other interesting characters that they've, uh, that they created up. And, um... It, you knew that no one was going to die by another hunter. Of course, we, we did worry about the right. demon and especially killing Jody. But we kind of knew that the only way to get rid of this demon was to exercise it. No one was going to go around running with a knife. Yeah. So um, it, it was it was good to see them getting back to the idea of exercising. One of the other things we've also brought up is they seem a little bit trigger happy on just killing a lot of these things. Yeah. Especially when they're possessing um and, and Jody's comment on being possessed was pretty funny right at the end too. And uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that and I also we we also have to bring up for a quick second the fact that second episode in a row Dean's talked about killing Hitler. So yeah. <laughs> oh boy, yeah, we knew that train wasn't gonna end quick. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I really like the way that they included the exorcism in this episode and the fact that they all kind of joined in and pitched in to make that happen. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a great way to do it. So. Like we kind of talked about, there's been a lot of returns um, on Supernatural so far this season, and there's a lot of it. there were a lot of returns this week in particular that I think overall we've welcomed. But the one I wasn't too keen on, and as I never really am, was that of Billy the Reaper. And you know, I much prefer the Reaper Tessa, but since she was kind of she kind of became a suicide bomber back in season nine, which sucked by the way because it ruined her character. At the end. Uh, I guess we're stuck with Billy for now. And this week, Dane had to make a deal with Billy in order to get back into the house that Jail had warded to save his mother, brother, and stepmother of sorts, Jody. And in return for this almost crossroads-type deal, ironically, Dean now owes Billy one. Uh, at the end of this week's episode, we find out that Billy doesn't just want Sam and Dean, but also their mom. And it actually took me a second to realize that Mary was playing the Reaper about going back to heaven because I was really hoping that she wasn't that bad of a mother. I was a little <laughs> concerned for a moment there, but at the end I was like, oh, thank God. So, Tim, if our theory about how the season may end is correct, with Crowley going full-on bad after putting Lucifer back in the cage, or killing him, and then killing Mary Winchester at the end just to get to the Winchester brothers, then it's possible that the quote-unquote one that Dean owes the Reaper Billy Maybe that Mary is never allowed to return back from the dead. Does this, this seems probable to me. How does this sound to you? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things I was thinking this week, especially when Jody's possessed and she's saying, kill Mary. Um, I don't know. One of the thoughts I had this week is, I don't know if we're going to see Mary survive to the end of the season. Yeah. And we keep seeing this dynamic. And it, it hit me this week that I think what we're going to see is, they're going to be playing this game of cat and mouse. Mary's not quite ready to come back into the fold yet. Hopefully we'll get a little bit more of her with the mid-season stuff. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we will. Yeah. Um, and hopefully she'll keep bouncing in and out. But I think that a lot, a big plot of this, this season is Dean and Mary trying to come to terms with the fact that she's not fully ready for this. Dean's having a hard time with it. And I think right as soon as they get on the same page, boom, Mary Winchester is dead. Yep. Now, I think, and I hope, 
that they would use Crowley as the big bad guy to do that. I don't think there's anyone else big enough in Supernatural, even Lucifer, to be honest. I mean, if we were talking season five, I would say he was big enough to do it, but right. he's no longer the big bad guy in the show that um, we can count on to kind of do crazy stuff like that. So I think um, I think we could definitely see Crowley killing her. Yeah. I think it would definitely lead into the to the next season that we've been talking about, and I mean, kind of seeing the foreshadowing that I think the writers are trying to put down, especially in episodes like this, it gives me a lot of hope that um, maybe our predictions are right and that this season is going in the direction we kind of hoped from the beginning and that we've kind of predicted from the beginning. And, um, you know, we talked about it at the end of that first episode. We were like, please do it, you know? I mean, as much as we love to see how Mary Winchester interacts with her sons, I mean... It, it would be that big motivating plot, and I think we both really want to see Crowley go out kind of in the series finale as kind of the big bad guy that they've been building up since, I mean, his first appearance was in season five. Right. So um, it would be it would be a good way to, to kind of end the series as we've been talking about, but I definitely see the foreshadowing they've been laying in this episode, and if they do, if they wind up doing something like this at the end of this season, I can definitely see us going back and pointing out this episode and being like there was definitely some foreshadowing and laying down in that one. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. So that being said, lastly, let's talk about the Winchester family quick. With Mary's return this week, it kind of threw a monkey wretch into Sam and Dean trying to enjoy Hunter culture a bit, and it caused them to have to deal with their mother leaving them again. The way each brother handled Mary this week was honestly about what I would have expected, and that worked out great. Though, I have to be honest, I was relieved when Mary finally said that she was going to be coming back home to the bunker with the boys very soon. I think Sam and Dean were as well. I'm really excited to continue to see the Winchesters hunting dynamic, which already is much different than John or Bobby or Samuel hunting with the boys. And I think there's a lot of potential here still. Um, I think this episode proves it, and I think that third episode back proved it as well when we watched them hunt the ghosts together. Tim, were you also happy that the Winchester drama kind of ended this week? And do you have any other thoughts on Sam, Dean, or Mary in this week's episode? Well, let me first off say I really hope the drama has ended, but I kind of have this concern that they don't want to throw Mary in for the rest of the season, that she's going to be kind of a side character. So, I mean, she, she did say she's not quite ready to come back. So I'm sure she's going to disappear until we see her again mid season. Yeah. Um, so for the drama for right now is probably resolved, but I, I just don't see her in the monster of the week episodes after this, the mid season, I think, I mean, I think they're going to have to come up with some other family drama to drive her away. Who knows? Maybe it'll be Dean this time instead of her. I mean, we were just talking about how we think Dean and Mary are going to have to finally reconcile kind of at the end of the season. And that's that's going to be right around the time that that crap goes south. So I think we I think we won't see her in the Monster of the Week episodes, which makes me kind of think that as much as I would love the drama to finally be over, that it's not going to be over. Well, this is the CW after all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what 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 would it be without, you know, some family plot line thrown in here and there? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it it was a good episode in terms of their interaction though. I mean, we see we see Dean being kind of the emotional hothead he normally is, and yeah. this is this is how he deals with everything. Yep. I mean, one of the things I think we can both agree on is that no matter what season we're talking about, Sam and Dean's character has been pretty specific or pretty straightforward. They've been pretty consistent throughout the the entire series so far, except for maybe Sam losing his soul for the first half of season six. Yeah. But there's obvious reasons why his personality was a little different there. Yes. Um. So I have a lot of. I mean, they've been very consistent, and we see that in this episode. We see a, a Dean who's a bit of a hothead storms out of the building to go get some some fresh air and uh, has to fight his way back in. And you know, on the topic. Um, I'm not a big fan of Billy either. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, I don't think I've been a fan of the Reapers their entire show run so far. I mean, Death was a cool character, but I'm just not a huge fan of the Reapers, and they've had better Reapers for sure. We've well, seen see, my favorite Reaper is still the Reaper in the episode Faith back in season one. Yes. That's still one of my favorite episodes mm-hmm. of the show, just because of the introduction of the of those creatures. Exactly. It's been incredible ever since the beginning. Mm-hmm. But. Well, I mean, 
The concept, anyway. Yeah, the concept of Reapers. And I did is... like Tessa. Yeah. Well, I like Tessa a lot until the very end, and then I'm like, oh. Well, I always saw her character going south, to be honest, but I, it's kind of one of the CW, CW's issues to overuse some characters every now and again. Right. But I think I think the point I'm trying to get at is that, um, you know, they did introduce Billy last season, and the, her whole point has been to pop in and remind Sam and Dean, next time you die, it's over. Right. Um, which, again, brings up a good point when we talk about Mary Winchester. Yes. Um, because the Winchesters, at this point, are remarkably well known for getting second lives. Yeah, just and about third. every one of them has. Exactly. Including Adam. <laughs> don't get us started on the, on the on the Adam topic. No, we, we don't. We, we don't need go that. There. We won't go there. <laughs> no, but um, I mean, all of them have had second lives, but this is it. Um, which also kind of feeds into our: if anything happens to Mary Winchester, it's over. She's yeah. not getting a second chance. She's not coming back. And the thing is, is that we know the boys will try and fight to get her back, but um, it's not going to happen. Billy's never going to let it happen. No. Um, you know, so. In a way, it's good that they finally have a check on their mortality, because, you know, I mean, the plot line of Dean dying, like, li- like literally every other season's wearing a bit thin. But, at the same time, I'm just not a huge fan of Billy. I haven't been a huge fan of the Reapers, but especially I haven't been a huge fan of Billy, so. Yeah. No, I don't disagree. The only thing that, uh, <laughs> the only thing that her what die should stay dead policy kind of pisses me off about is the fact that now Bobby could, like, never come back from the <laughs> I'm not too, ha- too happy about that one, but well, what I are think, we gonna do? I think we closed the door on Bobby coming back when uh, when they got rid of his ghost. Yeah, but, unfortunately. Yeah. But I mean, he's back every season, which is an encouragement, that's for sure. So, hey, I'm sure we'll get a fun Bobby episode this season. Yeah, I hopefully. mean, who knows? They've they've done a lot of creative stuff with that so far, so mm-hmm. I don't know where they're going to take it this season, but I would have never guessed where they were going to take it last season either. We were talking about that one today, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that being said, I think that pretty much wraps up our discussion on Supernatural this week, guys. Mm-hmm. We will be back next week when we will be talking about, you know, Lucifer, the King of Rock. <laughs> um, so that'll be interesting as Sam and Dean go to uh, Vince Vincenti uh, oh, Rock yes. concert, so... Hair metal for the win. All right, guys, that being said, we're going to wrap it up here. And, Nico, back to you. All right, guys, thanks again for your Supernatural review. Great stuff. And with that, we're going to move into the closing. On next week's episode, we'll continue the fall 2016 TV season with a review of the next episode of Walking Dead, Star Wars Rebels, Westworld. But there won't be Supernatural for Michael and Tim because of the Thanksgiving holiday. So they'll pick it up the next week, and we'll be back with that in two weeks. Also, DC Nation continues with... With episodes of Gotham, Supergirl, and Flash. No Arrow or DC Legends of Tomorrow, again because of Thanksgiving. Also be sure to keep an eye out for Steve, Wu, Nikki, and the rest of the Marvelverse crew doing the Marvelverse podcast and their coverage of the Marvel Cinematic and Television Universes when S.H.I.E.L.D. returns in a couple weeks. But for now, in much of the season, let's roll Dan's pre-recorded closing. Get at our Across the Airways podcast network website, acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's acrosstheairways.com. You can check out all of our podcast shows, available as their own individual programs get the itunes store get google play store guys for the podcast shows cut our network we have the dc nation podcast located at dcnation.acrosstheairwaves.com again that's dcnation.acrosstheairwaves.com which reviews popular dc comics related tv shows get movies there's also the marvelverse podcast located at marvelversepodcast.acrosstheairwaves.com again that's marvelversepodcast.acrosstheairwaves.com which reviews marvel comics related tv shows get movies can we also have Thrones Cast, our podcast dedicated to reviewing episodes of HBO's Game of Thrones, which is available at the website thronescast.acrosstheairwaves.com. Again, that's thronescast.acrosstheairwaves.com. In addition to these programs, you can listen to the original Across the Airwaves podcast, which is accessible at acrosstheairwaves.com, which reviews TV shows not related to superheroes, core Game of Thrones, like The Walking Dead, Doctor Who, Star Wars Rebels, Supernatural, and more, including sitcoms such as The Big Bang Theory and The Muppets. Also, you can listen to Across the Airways, the DC Nation podcast, Thronescasting 
Game of Thrones podcast, and the Marvelverse podcast, on the Mix Radio Station, code by Jack Stifle, Stitcher Radio, or if you use Apple devices, download the Podcast Box app. And if you're on a Windows or Android device, you can download our apps from the Amazon Marketplace, and the Windows Marketplace, and a regular Windows or Windows Phone app. Because for how you can contact us to give your own listener feedback, got the TV shows we review, provide suggestions on how we can improve your podcast listening experience, or just want to say, do you like what we're doing? Email us at across the airways at gmail.com. Again, that's across the airwaves at gmail.com. Comment on our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter, got across the airwaves. There's no thought in there. It's just across the airwaves. Join our circle, got Google Plus, or leave us a voicemail by calling 773-809-3363. Again, that's 773-809-3363. Call someone sending us an email. Please mention which podcast show you're directing the message to. Give the subject line. Give you are sending us listener feedback you want us to read. God the air. I would also recommend that you check out our YouTube page, which features trailers for upcoming movies and television events. Along with this content, the ATA YouTube channel is a great source for panels from past Comic-Con, and it will be a great resource to find videos related to the Comic-Con taking place in San Diego this summer to go along with our Comic-Con special. So once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Nikki, Amy, Wukim, Joshua Mercury, Steve Nostro, and Michael J. Petty, I'm Nico Reifstead, and until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airway. See you guys, and thanks for joining us for another episode of ATA covering Walking Dead, Star Wars, Rebels, Westworld, and Supernatural. See ya! Now return to our regularly scheduled program.